Go ahead and take out your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis in chapter 18. Book of Genesis, chapter 18. As you are turning there, Genesis 18, I want to, uh, to begin by reading something to you. Jesus came to your house to spend a day or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you'd do. Oh, I know you'd give your nicest room to such an honored guest, and all the food you'd serve him would be the very best, and you would keep assuring him you're glad to have him there, that serving him in your home is joy beyond compare. But when you saw him coming, Would you meet him at the door with arms outstretched to welcome in your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in? Or hide some magazines and put the Bible where they'd been? Would you turn off the radio and hope he hadn't heard and wish you hadn't uttered that last loud, nasty word? Would you hide your worldly music and put some hymn books out? Could you let Jesus come right in or... Would you rush about? Oh, I wonder if the Savior came to spend a day with you. Would you just go on doing all the things you normally do? Would you go right on saying the things you always say? Would life for you continue as it does now day to day? Would your family conversation keep up its usual pace? Or would you find it hard each meal to say a table grace? Would you sing the songs you always sing and read the books you read and let him know on which the things your mind and spirit feeds? Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you'd plan to go? Or would you maybe change your plans for just a day or so? Would you be glad to have him meet with all your closest friends or would you hope they'd stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever on and on? Or would you sigh with great relief when, when finally at last he was gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus came in person to spend the day with you. That's a, an old poem uh, written by a lady named Lois Blanchard Eads. Uh, I remember hearing it as a child. Uh, growing up and this week as I was preparing this message, uh, that poem came back to my mind. Um, it has its, its weaknesses. You and I already know very well that Jesus is with us each and every day. Um, there's not a moment that Jesus is not with us. Every second we live is a moment lived before the eyes of our Lord. We cannot hide our magazines or hope He hasn't heard what we've said. We cannot live that way. Our lives are an open book before our Savior. But I thought about that book, I thought about that poem this week because when we come to Genesis 18, what we find is a day when, as I understand it, our Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, surprises Abraham and Sarah by showing up at their house, or more specifically their tent. Let's look together at, uh, at these verses. Um, we're in this series on Abraham. Uh, But what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks is kind of a series within a series because chapter 18, chapter 19 uh, are all about Sodom, 
all about God's dealings with this city called Sodom. So uh, for the next couple of weeks, I'm calling this series The Significance of Sodom. And uh, we're going to learning, be learning about this the city, how God deals with it. And uh, there is a lot here that is applicable to us, a lot here that is important for us to see. It all kicks off in Genesis 18, verse 1. So let's look together at verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So here's the scene, right? We're at the Oaks of Mamre. This is a place called Hebron. Uh, When Lot and Abraham parted ways back in Genesis 13, this was where Abraham chose to settle, by these oaks at a place now called Hebron. Um, Abraham has now lived here for decades, yet it's interesting he has not built a house yet. We're told he still lives in a tent. Um, It may be that at different parts of the year, Abraham and his household would pack up their tents and they would take their flocks to other places where there was more food or more water. But if Abraham can be said to have had a home in Canaan, this place, Hebron, would have been his home. And so we might wonder, why did Abraham never build a permanent house? Why did he choose to live this um, pilgrim's life of living in a tent? Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham considered himself a stranger and an exile on earth. That he was looking forward, as the Hebrew writer says, to a city that is to come. He was looking for a city whose designer and builder is God with foundations that will never be destroyed. In other words, the Bible tells us that Abraham lived with his eyes on heaven. He was looking forward to the day when God had promised him he and his future descendants were going to live in an eternal city forever and ever. And so in Abraham's mind, this world was not his home. He truly was just passing through. And so that kind of explains some about his life, why it is that he's still living in a tent. Look at verse 2 with me. He lifted up his eyes... And looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Stop. So so Abraham looks up from his tent and he sees these three men standing in front of him. Now they weren't weren't directly in front of him. They seemed to have been a little ways off because he got up and he had to run to them. Right, So we see him get up and, and run to them. He seems very eager to greet these men as he sees them walking by his tent. And uh, the, the commentaries tell us that Abraham was a, a, an elderly man, a wealthy man, a man respected by his neighbors, and that it was very uh, unusual for a man of his age and his stature to be caught seen, to be seen running. Um, That this is a big deal that Abraham ran to greet these men. In fact, it shows that Abraham understood these men who are walking by to be important men. In fact, we're told that he bowed himself to the earth to them. So why did this happen? What what did Abraham know about these strangers walking by that caused him to leap up from his tent, run out to them, bow down lowly to them, and greet them? Well, look at what Abraham says in verse 3. Verse 3. 
O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Um, our, Our English word, Lord, can be used to speak of God, and it can be used to speak of other people. Uh, it used to be common in parts of Europe for people to address their superiors as, My Lord, yes, my Lord. Um, yet in Hebrew, there is a little difference between the word Lord used for God and the word Lord used for others. Uh, when you are addressing God, you say, Adonai. When you are addressing a person who's just your superior, you would say, Adonai. And so here, it is very important to note that in the Hebrew, when Abraham runs up to one of these three men and says, O Lord, he does not say Adonai. He says Adonai. And every other place we find Adonai in the Old Testament, it is used only of addressing Almighty God. So Abraham is calling this person God. Now, that would explain why he got up and ran, wouldn't it? It would explain why he bowed himself low to the earth. That would explain why he calls, him your, why he calls himself his, the, the Lord's servant and why he says, if I have found favor in your sight. But how did Abraham know that this man was God himself? Well, in all likelihood, this wasn't the first time that God had appeared to Abraham in this way. In fact, if you look back at Genesis 17, in the very first verse, we're told, chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. We're not told how the Lord appeared to Abram. We're just told the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. Now, look back at chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him. So it is very possible that God had already on other occasions appeared to Abraham and spoke to Abraham in, this, in the person of this man. Um, it seems very likely that this is the same man who was called the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16. The same man who was called God who greeted Hagar. Um, there by the waters. And so, as we've talked about this in the past, it is my conviction that this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That this is God Himself appearing as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as Abraham sees this man that he knows is God, and these two other men walking by, he, he runs out to say, you know, hey, stop, please stop here. If you have found favor with me, please come spend time with me. Now, if one of these men is God himself, who are these other two men? Well, if you look at verse 22, if you look at the first verse of chapter 19, we are clearly told that these other two men are angels. And so what we have here are two angels and the angel of the Lord. Two angels and God himself. Do you see why Abraham ran? Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. And so they said, Do as you have said. So notice, Abraham here is, is offering a little water, he says, a morsel of bread. 
But then he's going to run back to his tent and he is already thinking on grander terms than a little water and a morsel of bread. In fact, rather than giving them a little water and a little bread, he's already got in mind a royal feast. We're talking roast beef with sides and with milk. Look at verses 6 through 8 and look at this grand feast that Abraham prepares. Verses 6 through 8. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick! Three sails of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now you see how rushed this whole thing is, right? Three times we have this word quickly. Twice we're told again, Abraham is is running about. And so Abraham was serious about as quickly as possible preparing a feast that would be fit for a king for his guests. And so now as we come to verse 8, he stands by ready to serve them by the tree as they sit there and enjoy the meal. Uh, Imagine watching God eat a meal. That's what Abraham is doing here. He is watching God in the person of this man eat a meal. In fact, it's kind of a picture of what's going to come later, right? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, when the disciples and tax collectors and prostitutes and others sit with the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself, as He enjoys a meal. Uh, Abraham here is a model for us of hospitality. We see how he ran around seeking to be the very best host to his Lord. Just ask yourself, how would you have acted in Abraham's shoes? How would you have responded to the Lord Jesus, God himself, showing up at your house, weary, needing refreshment? What would you have done to show hospitality to your Lord? You would probably have gone all out too, wouldn't you? Did you know that Jesus commanded us to show hospitality to one another just as if we were showing hospitality to Him? Did you know that He said things like this in Matthew 10.40? Whoever receives you, receives me. Speaking to His disciples, talking about welcoming, receiving, and showing hospitality, He said, those who receive you, my disciples, and treat you well, it's just as if they have done the same to me. In Romans 12, verse 13, we are commanded very simply, seek to show hospitality. In 1 Timothy 5.10, Paul is describing godly women. And one of the marks of a godly woman that he describes there is that she is a woman who has shown hospitality. Hebrews 13.2, great verse. You love Hebrews 13.2. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do you know that? So you have this verse telling you don't neglect not only to show hospitality to Christians, to show hospitality to brothers and sisters, but also be quick to show hospitality to strangers. For you never know who it really is that you might be entertaining. 1 Peter 4.9 Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Did you realize there were so many verses in the Bible on hospitality? I've just read a few. This truly is one of the marks of God's people. We are to be known for our hospitableness towards one another and towards outsiders and to strangers. 
In the, uh, the first century, gospel preachers and church planters would come to different towns to preach the gospel. And whenever they came to a different town, they were dependent upon people in that town opening up their homes to them. In fact, we often talk about the Apostle Paul and how great was the ministry of the Apostle Paul and all the absolutely amazing things that God did through the Apostle Paul. But do we realize that the Apostle Paul's ministry was sustained by people who were willing to open up their homes to him and to care for him? Now, he tried to be as little of a burden as possible. We're told that he kept up his tent-making business when he could. He would provide a place to stay for himself. But when you come to places like Romans 16, you find him naming people and, and mentioning that he is thankful for the hospitality that he has received from them along the way. And so we see that hospitality ought to characterize us who are Christians. Why? Because hospitality characterizes our God. Has not our God welcomed us in? Despite our dirtiness, despite our sin, despite our wickedness, God has refreshed us. He has made us clean. And He has welcomed us into His own household, into His own home. And just as God has welcomed us, so now we are to display the character of our God by welcoming others. So here... In our life together as a church, when new people come among us or visitors or attend the service, we should be quick to do all we can, even rushing around like Abraham if necessary, to make sure they feel honored and welcome. In our homes, we should seek to be hospitable and to welcome people in the same way. God's people should be marked by hospitality. The reason I'm stressing this, by the way, there's a reason that Moses includes Abraham's run, running all around. It's completely different than the hospitality the angels are going to receive from the people of Sodom. Right? So we have here a gracious kind of hospitality that counters the very wicked kind of hospitality that we're going to see among the unrighteous in Sodom. Well, let's keep going. Verse 9. Look with me at verse 9. Here's Abram standing by as the Lord and these two angels eat together. And here's what happens next. Verses 9 and 10. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Okay, so the Lord restates his promise to Abraham. The difference is this time he gives a deadline. Within one year, when I return... The promised son will have come. But where is Sarah when he's saying these things? Abraham says she is in the tent. But if you look at the end of verse 10, he goes further, right? And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. The picture seems to be that she is almost uh, listening in secretly on the conversation, Right? In fact, the, the picture is that she is behind this man who is speaking. He doesn't know she is there, supposedly. And as she hears him say, this time next year, she will have a son, what do you think her response is? Look at verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out 
and my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? In other words, Sarah responds with, with incredulity. She, she does not believe what the Lord has just said. It is laughable to her. But there's a difference between the last chapter when Abraham laughed and this chapter when Sarah laughs. When Abraham laughed, he laughed out loud to God. But what are we told about Sarah's laugh? Do you see it? She laughed to herself. These things that she said, she said to herself. In the Hebrew, it literally says she laughed within herself. So here is the, the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, talking to Abraham. Here's Sarah, supposedly listening in the tent. He doesn't know she's here. She's laughing to herself about what she's hearing. And look what happens next. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? What, what do you think overcame Sarah when she heard that? <laughs> this man not only knew that she was listening in, he knew what she had just done in her heart. <laughs> he knew the laughing that she had just done inside of herself. He knew her innermost thoughts. He even responds to her thoughts, right? Is there anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time? I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. When we come to verse 15, we find out Sarah is now afraid. <laughs> you understand why. Her thoughts have just been laid out. She, she lies. She tries to defend herself. I, I did not laugh. It's kind of a half truth. She didn't laugh out loud. Yet the Lord responds with an absolute matter of factness, no, but you did laugh. In other words, not only are we being taught here the omnipotence of God, that God can do absolutely anything, including causing a son to be born when it is biologically impossible. Not only are we, are we learning here about the omnipotence of God, the almightiness of God, but we are also learning here about the omniscience of God. That He knows all. That He sees all. Even our most innermost thoughts and fears and belief or unbelief. Dear friends, do you understand that the Lord knows everything about you? Isn't it amazing then that He still loves us so much? Isn't it amazing that He knows your every wicked thought, your every sinful motivation you've ever had, and yet He does not reject you? All who come to Him, though He knows you inside and out, though He knows your past, present, and your future, He accepts you and loves you with an everlasting love. A few Wednesday nights ago, we started talking about this at care meeting, and uh, Merle made a great point, and they're traveling today, so I'm going to share his point uh, that he made at care meeting. Uh, he said that if we think about all of our other human relationships, there is no one else in our lives who knows everything about us. Even those who are closest to us, our spouses, our children, they don't know everything about us. And it is always possible 
that someone could learn something new about us, some, some sin in our past, some, some sinful thought we've had, something we've said or something we've done, and all of a sudden that new piece of information about us causes that person who has loved us to suddenly pull away from us, to suddenly no longer love us as they once did, to no longer be by our side as they once were. But this doctrine means that it will never be so with God. That He knows everything about us already. Which means that there is no new piece of information that God could ever learn about us that would cause Him to pull away from us. He already knows all. And yet He loves us and has attached Himself to us forever. I think that should bring us much comfort. And I hope it does bring you much comfort. Unless you're not a Christian. If you're still an enemy of God, if you're still one who is refusing to submit to God's ways, if you're still one who is against God, then His knowledge of you should scare you to death. For on the last day, when you stand before God, you can be sure that every single sin you've ever committed will be brought to light. He will have missed none of them. We in our human hearts sometimes think that we can hide our sin from our loved ones, from our friends, from others around us. We, they won't know, they won't see, they won't know about this, but God knows. And on the last day, if we are not resting in Christ, all of that darkness will be brought out into bright light and you will be held accountable for every dark thing you've ever done. And on that day, the omniscience of God will scare you. For those who are refusing to submit to God, His knowledge is a scary thing. But for those of us who turn to God as our Father, who trust in Christ as our Savior, His knowledge is a precious, precious thing. Now, in these verses, God has been promising a miraculous birth. In a lot of ways, what God is promising here with the, the miraculous birth of Isaac parallels and points to the coming miraculous birth of Jesus. If you think about it, in both cases, it's God who causes the Son to be born. In both cases, a birth happens when it should have been an impossibility for a birth to happen. In both cases, a birth announcement is made ahead of time, in Mary's case, by the angel Gabriel, in this case, by the angel of the Lord. And just as here, God says to Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? So many centuries later, Gabriel would say to Mary, nothing is impossible for God. And so that's how it is with us as Christians. The only way a person can ever truly trust Christ is if their rebellious heart is replaced with a new heart. We have to go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive in order for you or I to be saved. We must experience a miraculous birth. The disciples asked Jesus who then can be saved and Jesus said, the very same thing that was said concerning Isaac, the very same thing that was said concerning his own birth. With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so we have the picture of 
our own miraculous birth here. Uh, before we move on, I want to note one more thing in this passage. Uh, did you notice that when Sarah was speaking to herself in verse 12, she referred to Abraham as her Lord? Do you see that in verse 12? Everybody look at verse 12. Do you see in verse 12 she refers to Abraham as her Lord? Uh, in other words, she didn't just call him that as a sign of respect when others were listening. Right? She isn't saying this out loud in her own heart of hearts when she's talking to herself. She's referring to Abraham as her Lord. Now, she's not calling him God or anything like that, but she is speaking of, of Abraham as her superior, someone that she looks up to, someone that she looks to, to to lead her and to care for her, someone that she respects. And the reason I want you to see that is because if you know your New Testament, you know that the Apostle Peter notices this and makes a big deal about it. Uh, turn with me real quickly to 1 Peter 3. I think it impressed Peter that he saw that that she referred to Abraham with this loving, respectful way, even when she was just talking to herself. It showed that it was genuine. It showed that it wasn't counterfeit, or, or she wasn't speaking this way just so that others would think she thinks well of her husband. She genuinely thought well of her husband. She genuinely called him Lord, even when she was just talking to herself. And so when we come to 1 Peter 3, and beginning in verse 1, uh, notice what Peter does with this. Beginning in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abram, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter points to Sarah as an example of a woman who was certainly not a, a doormat, certainly not a, a weak woman. I mean, if you've seen what we've seen from Sarah in the past chapters, this was a, a very strong-willed woman, and yet at the same time, at least at this point in her life, she has come to have a great respect for her husband. And we see her willingly submitting to his leadership. And so Peter points to this as an example for Christian wives. Now, let's look at verses 16 through 21. Verses 16 through 21 of Genesis 19. This is 19. I'm sorry, 18. 16 through 21. Begin with verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Okay, so Hebron, where all this has been taking place, is a thousand meters above sea level. Okay, so we're, we're pretty high up, elevation speaking. Sodom is near the Dead Sea, which is below sea level. So geographically, they really are looking down on the city of Sodom. They can l actually look down and see the city itself. And uh, it's the city where Abraham's nephew lives, Lot. And Lot's family live in Sodom. And so as these men begin to leave and begin to head towards Sodom, Abraham goes with them a little ways. 
This was considered a polite thing to do in that day, to, to go with them a little ways. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, it's still considered a polite thing to do. We see it often. One great example, Luke in Acts 21.5 tells us this. Listen to what Luke says about uh, the city of Tyre. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with their wives and their children, accompanied us until we were outside of the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. So you see, the people of the city, knowing that the apostles were about to leave, accompanied them a little ways on their journey to a place where they said farewell and parted. Well, that's what Abraham is doing here. He is walking with the Lord and his angels a little ways as they head towards Sodom, except it turns out their encounter isn't quite over. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. The Lord is asking a a question, but he's really explaining to his two angels why it is that he is about to let Abraham in on what it is he's about to do. It's as if he turns to his angels and he, he gives them a little lesson. And he's basically saying to his angels, Shall I hide from Abraham? What I'm about to do in Sodom when this, 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 and this. And he goes on to explain why he wants to let Abraham in on his plan concerning Sodom. The fact that God does include Abraham in on his plan concerning Sodom is one of the reasons why throughout the rest of the Bible, Abraham is known as a friend of God. Uh, That title, uh, used in several places in the scripture for Abraham, comes from places like this. In verses like Isaiah 41, 8, 2 Chronicles 27, Abraham is called God's friend. Um, We're going to pick up tonight, but as we close, I want you to turn with me to James 2. James 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. Abraham 2, I'm sorry, uh, James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called, what? A friend of God. Friends, what is it that made Abraham a friend of God? Well, you see it right there in the passage. It was the fact that Abraham had believed God and completed that belief with obedience. Shown that belief through obedience. Folks, it is an unbelievable thing that God Almighty would look on any of us and make us His friends. I mean, we are like ants compared to God, right? I mean, imagine how strange this is that God Almighty, who spoke the heavens into existence, would make men and women His friends. Don't you want to be a friend of God? There are so many benefits to being a friend of God. Jesus 
in John 14, looks at His disciples, calls them His friends, and listen to what He says to them. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I make known to you. In other words, Jesus says three things characterize those who are truly his friends. One, they are the ones for whom he died, the ones for whom he laid down his life. Two, they are the ones who look to him and do what he commands. And three, he reveals to them what he is doing. This is how it was with Abraham. Abraham was one for whom God would die, Christ himself. Abraham is one who would now come to the place of believing on God and seeking to obey him. And now Abraham is one to whom God is revealing his plans. So it is with us in this room who are Christians. We are those for whom Christ died. Out of every tongue, tribe, nation, we have been ransomed out of them. Moreover, we are those who trust Christ. And because we trust Christ, we long to do what He says. And finally, because we are now God's friends, He seeks to reveal to us what it is He is doing in this world. Just as God brought Abraham in and filled Abraham in on what it was He was about to do, so because we have been called friends of God through Jesus Christ, He has given us His Word that we can now through the our eyes being opened and our ears being made to hear by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now understand the big picture of what God is doing in this world today. Christ tells us, for we are His friends. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're getting this, and I, I want to see that you're getting this. What a privilege for God to let us in on what He's doing in the world. What a privilege to be His friend. And it only comes the same way it came for Abraham. By believing on God. By believing and having that counted as righteousness. So as we close, let me remind us that every person in this room is either a friend of Christ or an enemy of Christ. You either see how good and wise and perfect He is, how He died on the cross, how He loved the poor and the needy. How He is a strong Savior for helpless sinners. Or you don't see that at all. And you really couldn't care less. You fall probably into one of those two camps. You believe in yourself. You're more concerned about living the way you want to. Or you're a friend of Christ who looks to the Bible in faith as He fills you in on what He's doing in the world, what He's doing in your life, and calls you to walk in accordance with it. Where do you stand? As you leave this church service this morning, can you leave saying with confidence in your heart, I, like Abraham, am a friend of God. Where do you stand? Well, it all depends on where you stand with Christ. Run to Him this morning. Throw yourself upon Him. Turn from your sin and believe on Him. Let's pray. Well, I would call of us now to uh, take a few